I would murder a toddler for a piece of cake. Hello, this is Tencent Takes, the podcast where we commit random acts of pop culture archaeology one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I'm joined by my co-host, the pundit of pandemonium herself, Jessica Frazier. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hello. Welcome to our first episode. For those of you who are joining us, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at the coolest, weirdest, silliest moments and also examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Today, and I'm really excited about this, we're going to be talking about Saturday morning cartoons and how comics connected with them. But before we get into that, Jess, is there anything cool or interesting that you have read or watched lately? Yeah, absolutely. I was having a conversation with my brother the other day about Sabrina the Teenage Witch and we had started talking about the older comics and I said, well, shoot, I'm starting this podcast with Mike. I might as well start checking out some older comics as well. So yeah, they are, they're interesting. They're, they're definitely a product <laughs> of their time. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Lots of Sabrina running around and chasing boys, which seems to be primarily her main objective. What era are you reading from? Because Archie and Sabrina span a whole, you know, yeah. large period of time these i believe were from the 60s they had uh okay, yeah. dates at the top of them and i do believe it was from the 60s gotcha cool have you watched the chilling adventures of sabrina on netflix you know i watched the first season and i don't know if i i probably watched it prior to the second season coming out because then i just didn't start on it again i right. would like to start it again yeah, between that and Riverdale, it is it is a whole different ball game compared to those original comic books. It, so. It's a it's a whole vibe. It is. Yeah, yeah. It, is, <laughs> it is a very stylish, very horny vibe. And uh, and I'm here for it, to be completely honest. I'm not going to lie. I mean, the horny translated for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 What about you? Well... Somewhat apropos to our topic this week, I've actually been binging the Young Justice cartoon on HBO Max with my stepson. It's excellent. I mean, it's it's really, really good. But you can also tell when it became not widespread commercial television because seasons one and two were on Cartoon Network and then season three it was on the, the DC Universe app. And the shift between seasons two and three is genuinely kind of shocking. Like it's... It's way more violent and it's kind of gory. And oh. both my stepson and I sort of loved it. That was genuinely our favorite season. It was definitely more mature storytelling wise. And it was also just a lot of fun for me in the immediate sense, because it's a really fun cartoon that holds up. But the ongoing benefit has been my stepson asking me ongoing questions about various characters and storylines. So I get to sit there and nerd out with him and explain all this stuff. And then we get to go dig through my collection or through my graphic novels and I can show him stuff. So it's been real fun to sit there and bond with him over that. I was just going to say that's but, an yeah. amazing bonding activity. Yeah. He really got into comic books uh, a couple of years ago when I moved in. 
and that actually really jump-started his interest in reading and it's been really fun and satisfying to watch him turn into this immense nerd but yeah are you ready to talk about saturday morning cartoons now that we're out of, outside oh. of the wholesome moment i am right. so excited i am so excited yeah so we felt like this was a solid place to start the podcast since Saturday morning cartoons were a foundation of our childhoods. Like Jess, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the eighties, like all the way through the eighties. I was born in 81. Some of my strongest childhood memories involved waking up at 7am on a Saturday and then vegging out in front of the TV with a couple of bowls full of sugary cereal for pretty much the entire morning. Was that your experience too? Oh, that tracks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My All brother right. and I would run downstairs and the cartoons would come on. Milk's in the bowl. Let's do this thing. What was your cereal of choice? You know, it's so funny. I, I really like things like kicks. I'm not really. <laughs> You're like sugar cereal. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'll take the minimally sugar cereal. <laughs> but I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I really enjoy every once in a while. I'll get something like Lucky Charms and just... Those chalky marshmallows. Gosh darn, they bring you back. <laughs> you can just, you can actually just buy the marshmallows now. It's kind of wild. No, don't remind me. Oh, this is just as bad I was a as Frosted the other Flakes boy. Told... Oh, Frosted Flakes. Yes. Sorry, what did I tell you? Oh, you just, about the Girl Scout cookies that you can buy online now. We don't need to get into it. I'm still brewing about it. Ugh. <laughs> The pandemic yeah. has changed everything. I'm not sorry. <laughs> Don't be. <laughs> so we're going to spend some time talking about the comics associated with the golden age of Saturday morning cartoons, a.k.a. the mid to late 1980s. But before we can get to the meat of this episode, I need to give a quote unquote quick history lesson. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. All right. TVs really started to become an American staple in the 1950s. But at the start of that era they were still a very high-end status symbol. In 1950, only about 9% of Americans had televisions. But by 1960, wow. that number had actually jumped up to 90%. It suddenly became a luxury item for the middle class. Yeah. That's a huge jump. I can't, my mouth is agape. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. But the thing is that widespread access to TV meant programming and advertising could be aimed specifically at children on Saturday mornings. And it makes a lot of sense because there wasn't a lot to do back then. And the other thing is that like, you know, back then we only had what, three or four channels. So it was a captive audience. If you were targeting a family that had a TV and it was also kind of the, the big thing, there wasn't a lot of, there, there was no internet. There wasn't, you know, even phones were dial up rotary phones. And if I remember right, the number of phones was actually less than the number of TVs in houses, but I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me on that. It was <laughs> comparable, but yeah. And also multiple phone lines were not a thing back then. Like when I was oh, growing yeah. up in the 80s, we had we had two phone lines in my house and that was wild. We had a kid's phone line so that all of us could call our friends up and, and schedule stuff. So TV was the most effective way to reach the masses back then. And creating content specifically for kids from the 1960s all the way through the 1980s pretty much guaranteed an audience of 20 million viewers whenever you put stuff on during during those time frames. At the same time, there wasn't really a lot of oversight from regulators from the 40s to 50s, so a lot of the early children's programming was aimed 
directly or was directly tied into marketing. Uh, have you ever heard of a show called The Magic Clown? Okay. The Magic Clown. Yeah, The Magic Clown sounds like a really terrifying kind of show. And it actually, when you look at it, it holds up to that to that uh, perception. <laughs> but it was... It holds up to that word picture. Let's let's go with that. It ran from 1949 to 1954, so it was pretty successful. And it was a guy who went on to be a pretty successful stage magician, if I remember right. But the show was sponsored by Bonomo's Turkish Taffy, and every episode would feature constant plugs for this candy. Like, this was basically an infomercial for sugar. So I'm going to send you a YouTube video where we can watch it together. And you can see what I'm talking about. And also, I want you to give me some reactions to, to this. Uh, so let's start in three, two, one. Yeah. Hello, everybody. I like how he popped up like that. This is terrifying. I would like to note that the clown's makeup is genuinely unnerving. It melts in your mouth. I just want you to know that I wouldn't be without my Bonomo's turkey staffy. It's so delicious, and gee, it just gives you a lot of pep, too. You know, it's so easy to crack down on the table. Like that, see? Oh, I just tell you, boys and girls, look at those nice, small, delicious pieces of Bonomo's turkey staffy. Oh, they're small enough, see, to where you can... Put them in your mouth like that, and you can share them with your friends <laughs> and your neighbors. It's so gross. I like how he's just eating the candy in front of the children. And they're like, I want some. He's like, no, children, let me do this commercial. If you want the peppiest and the most wonderfulest candy you ever had, you just look for the red, white, and blue wrapper. It's the new Never Stick wrapper at your favorite candy color. And if you don't see it, you just say to the candy man, I want my bar of Bonomo's Turkish Taffy. Oh, it's wonderful. And now, Magic Cloud? Yeah, so that makeup is really unsettling and... I don't know about you, but I would be fucking terrified if I was a child who showed up for a TV audience and then had this dude dressed as arguably one of the more terrifying clowns I've ever seen and then hard selling me on Turkish taffy. But yeah, stuff like this wasn't that uncommon back then. Like if you go through YouTube, you can find all sorts of really blatant product placement on television. Sarah actually showed me a segment of the Flintstones, which... Originally, cartoons were primetime evening shows, and the Flintstones were doing spots where they advertised cigarettes. It's it's wild. And in fact, a lot of the early Saturday morning cartoons were reruns of primetime cartoons like the Flintstones, the Jetsons, the Alvin show, which is better known today as Alvin and the Chipmunks and Johnny Quest.
So it was really the mid-1960s when Saturday morning cartoons, as we know them, really began. There was this explosion of superhero cartoons. Some of them were licensed, like Superman, Aquaman, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four. There were others that were totally original, like Space Ghost or the Hercules or Birdman and the Galaxy Trio. And then there were also parodies of the superhero genre, so stuff like Underdog. Also, there was like this weird movement of weird of strangely popular music based cartoons based on real life groups like the Beatles and the Jackson Five, as well as fictional ones, which were based on things like the Archies or Josie and the Pussycats, going back to what you've been reading lately. Yeah. And the 60s was when we actually started to get parental watchdog groups to start getting involved, too. Have you ever heard of Action for Children's Television? No, what's that? Better known as ACT. It was founded by a group of moms back in 1968, and there are actually a lot of parental watch groups created in response to the children's programming because it was all pretty heavily influenced by marketing, and it was just trying to hard sell kids on stuff. So ACT is the one that's best known. They had the main goal of encouraging diversification in children's television. They really wanted to reduce the commercialization of what kids were watching, and they really wanted to eliminate deceptive advertising aimed at young viewers. I don't know if you heard this, but studies of young kids show that actually they can't differentiate between the program they're watching and then the advertising. It's it's something oh. like 90% of kids surveyed under the age of six can't tell this. That makes a lot and of then, sense why commercials give us so so much joy at this point. You know, if what like I think back and I remember commercials with like nostalgia, you know, there is a really big sense of right. nostalgia for some of that stuff. And I think that that may be part of it. That's so interesting. Right. And then the other thing is, and this is something I learned when I was an advertising major in college, there is a thing called pester power, which is that if you show a commercial to a kid, they will sit there and bug the shit out of their parents for it if they think it looks cool. So you had all of this programming that was really not necessarily deceptively marketing products to these kids, but it was it was using a real heavy hand. ACT got started back in the 1960s. They were actually focused on the Boston version of a show called Romper Room, which promoted branded toys on its programming. And Romper Room, right around the time that ACT got started, got acquired by Hasbro, which at the time, back in the 60s, was doing stuff like the original G.I. Joe figures, which were these these giant posable action figures that were actually way bigger than the ones that we grew up with in the 80s. So anyway, ACT's actions wound up drastically reducing the overt commercialization of kids' programming. It was, it was actually really good and really effective. It didn't quite get what, everything that they wanted from the FCC because what they wanted was they wanted the FCC to publish a public notice uh, of their guidelines for kids' television the guidelines were going to be that there had to be a minimum of 14 hours of programming for kids of different ages each week as a public service. They also didn't want any commercials on children's programs, which obviously did not happen. Nope. But yeah. <laughs> they also said that hosts from children's television shows could not sell other products. And in 1973, they actually were pretty effective. The National Association of Broadcasters adopted a revised code that limited commercial time in children's programming to 12 minutes per hour. So they got most of what they wanted. But you know, the nice thing about a compromise is that you can tell it's successful when 
nobody's really happy with the results. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then aside from the 12 minutes, they also set it up so that hosts of tel- children's television programs were totally prohibited from appearing in commercials that were aimed at kids. I feel like that was a pretty big win. And as a result, the 70s were kind of the era where children's programming hit that sweet spot of being simultaneously entertaining, educational, and kind of generally wholesome. You had this great blend of stuff like Captain Kangaroo and Schoolhouse Rock and Scooby-Doo and Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, which in hindsight sort of sucks because Bill Cosby was involved. But if you actually look at the programming itself, it's still really good. Yeah, you can like the art and not like the artist. Yeah, we should talk about that in a future episode. Agreed. Have you ever heard of a cartoon called The Drack Pack? That sounds so familiar, but I I do not know why. So The Drack Pack was this 1980 cartoon that kind of has become one of my favorite from the era because it's just so batshit and simultaneously wholesome. Uh, I'm going to send you another link. Ooh. And we're going to watch this together. Okay, ready. All right, three, two, up. Drac Jr. is like living his best drag life. And I love that. I love that for him. Oh, yeah. Also, let's take a moment to just acknowledge and appreciate that Dracula is Big D. Yeah. (laughs) Like, chef's kiss. Anyway. (sighs) So the Drac Pack came out in 1980. It didn't last long. But it's a good example of of what I enjoyed about this era, which is that even the, you know, quote unquote action heavy cartoons of this time were pretty tame. And up until this point, we were seeing stuff coming primarily from Hanna-Barbera and Filmation, which were kind of the big animation studios that were putting out all the content back then. And likewise, up until now, comic books had been present with cartoons. They had sort of, been adjacent to each other but they weren't really intertwined in the same way that we're about to see so if you look at comic books from the 70s and 80s you'll find a bunch of two-page ads for network cartoon schedules and there were also comic book adaptations and tie-ins to the bigger shows um but they they weren't really anything major you know this was not something that that the publishers were really trying to break the bank with But, and like so many things that have gone wrong, this all started when the 1980s began. Yeah. 
So what do you think happened in 1980 that caused everything to change? Oh, I mean, goodness, it's 1980. Wow. And my history is pretty awful. Wait, g- give me a hint. I'll give me a hint. The patron saint of the Republican Party. The Gipper. Oh, the, the what? The You're Gipper. You're killing me. The Gipper. Oh, my God. Okay. Ronald Reagan. I don't, I don't know this. Like I don't know this reference. I don't even know what it's from. It's just that's what that's what Ronald Reagan was called. Oh, like, yeah. I was thinking Ronald Reagan. And then you said Gipper, and I was like, okay, no, you t- you made a turn on me there, and I. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Ronald the Gipper Reagan was his nickname. Yeah, it was. He said like it was something he said like win one for the Gipper, and then was often referred to as the Gipper from some role he had in Hollywood back in the fifties, I think. Oh goodness, old Hollywood. How charming. Yeah. I'm sure. Mm. (laughs) Reagan got elected. And like so many insidious things that entered our culture back then and are still plaguing us today, Saturday morning cartoons became really problematic under the veneer of the quote-unquote free market. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. In 81, Reagan appointed a guy named Mark S. Fowler to chair the FCC. Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay. I hadn't either. His legacy is, putting it mildly, not great. I'm going to send you a picture of him, and I want you to give me your impression, just kind of your your three-second snap judgment. So what is your three-second take on Senior Fowler? (laughs) He's definitely got some Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. He's balding. He's got the... He looks like either a politician or a used car salesman. Interchangeable. Yeah, so he is exactly the guy that you would want overseeing content for small children, right? Oh, sure, 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 sure. He looks terrifying. He looks like... No, he looks like he's trying to take small children. Allegedly. Yeah, no, I, that's what I was describing him as to Sarah. I was like, this is the dude who looks like he would be driving the windowless van circling the park, waiting for <laughs> waiting for a, the smaller of the children to get separated from the pack. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fowler is most infamous for doing away with the fairness doctrine towards the end of his tenure, which led to extremely partisan news coverage in the future. But he was also a huge proponent of deregulation. So one of the first things he did after he was sworn in was loosen up the regulations related to children's programming over the very strenuous objections of ACT. Of course he, he did. By doing this, he actually provided toy manufacturers with carte blanche to start making what were effectively half-hour toy commercials for kids. So... Basically, this dude's legacy was A, the crass commercialization of children's programming, and then B, laying the groundwork for the rise of partisan networks like Fox News. Someone give this man a slow clap. It's kind of impressive. And then he shuffled off back into private practice and I'm sure did very well for himself, like so many boomers from this era. But almost immediately after the deregulation hit, toy manufacturers started to work really aggressively to create transmedia properties that would move toys and as a result a ton of the shows that we have a lot of fondness for that were emmy winning educational and entertaining programs like schoolhouse rock and captain kangaroo were canceled and then suddenly we were flooded with shows that were basically marketing all sorts of crap and there was a lot of it every millennial that you talk to 
can recall a handful of cartoons that just really connected with them. But when you sit there and start mentioning the ones that only had 13 to 20 episodes, you start getting a lot of glazed eyes and confused looks because they just, they don't remember this. And that's because a lot of these cartoons were garbage. And as a result, they didn't hit, they didn't stick and they were off the air real quick. And you can see this in those ads that I was talking about earlier, where you look year to year and there's very little carryover. Mm-hmm. Um, like, did you know there was a cartoon based on Rubik's cubes? Um, wow, that sounds adventurous. It is, uh, it is real bad. And it was called Rubik the Amazing Cube. And it involves, you know, I think this is another one where we just, uh, we need to watch it for a second. Jeez, (laughs) please. (laughs) It's, it's impressive. All right. Let me know when you're ready to play and we'll start playing in tandem. Yeah. Give me a sec. It, It jumped on me last time. Three, two, one. I'm so confused already. Yeah, it makes very little sense. It involves a Rubik's Cube falling off a magician's gypsy cart. I don't quite know what else to describe it as. No. Okay, that <laughs> That's was all you terrifying. Need to watch. That was terrifying. That was so scary. My so, dog just started barking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was falling and that's out thing, of like this that... old cart. It was like supposed to be set in very clearly in like the eighties, based on their clothing, yeah. and it's falling out of some like I don't know some like sixteen hundreds like Romani cart. You know what I mean? Like yeah, wild. What in the world? No, it makes no sense and there is something about how he is a magic cube and when he is solved he grows a horrifying goblin face and legs and takes these kids on adventures it lasted for like 13 episodes it it clearly did not gel but during my research i was surprised to learn that the rubik's cube was actually a toy that really gained popularity in america in the early 80s Clearly, this cartoon was not the powerhouse marketing tool that they wanted it to be, but no, the product itself did okay. It's still around. It's a thing. It's it's definitely <laughs> a part of nerd culture based on the fact that I still regularly see people do competitive Rubik's Cube solving. Oh, that's impressive. I, I'm always impressed by people yeah. who do a good Rubik. Meanwhile, I had one sitting in my bedroom for four years that I never solved. You know, as opposed to these fuckers who can solve it in five seconds or less. So, whatever. Thanks for making me feel dumb, nerds. (laughs) (laughs) You're your own variety of nerd, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, There was a lot of crap, and a lot of it didn't stick around. The central premise of these cartoons was the conflict between good versus evil and, and good triumphing. And this is also something that ties back to the cold war where like the eighties were all about good versus evil. And there was that binary morality of like black and white conflicts that were very much a part of our culture back then. Now that we have gotten all of this info out of the way, and I'm sorry that we went off on such a tangent, let's talk about how comics got more involved in this stuff. 
So first of all, there were comics that were straight up licensed adaptations, which is pretty common these days. We're used to that with any major media property. But there were a few cases where comics were used in totally different original ways, and they had a pretty profound effect. We're going to talk about the the licensed stuff first, because that's actually pretty quick. Marvel, obviously, was getting their their sticky little fingers all over this. And they had the license, the lion's share of licensed comics based on Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s, largely through their kid-friendly imprint that was called Star Comics. Star Comics ran from 84 to 88. And almost every series that they put out under this imprint was licensed. The lasting claim to fame for it was actually an original character, sort of, uh, called Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, who was especially noteworthy in the Spider-Verse movie that came out a couple of years ago when he was voiced by... I was just going to by... say. Yeah. And he was voiced by John Mulally? Mulaney? I can never pronounce his name John right. Mulaney. Uh-huh. John uh-huh. Mulaney. <laughs> I yeah. John Mulaney. Yeah, so... Like that was pretty much the lasting claim to fame. Most of the series put out by Star lasted for at best a dozen issues. A notable exception was Thundercats that lasted for 17. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was I think 13 issues. If you look at the stuff that came out under Star, it's very obvious that they never quite had that hit that they were looking for based on cartoons and marvel was really gunning for that property again and i'll explain that in a second dc really didn't have as much of a presence in the saturday morning cartoon adaptations market they got involved with some stuff like they did a mini series based on masters of the universe it was actually the first one it was like a three issue mini series and then it moved over to marvel they also did straight up adaptations of a couple of kind of G.I. Joe knockoffs. There was Mask and Cops. And then they also did a Rainbow Bright movie tie in, but they didn't do a Rainbow Bright ongoing comic series. Mm. Uh, they didn't really have a wing devoted to specifically publishing stuff that was really kid friendly. And it's not to say that they didn't publish stuff like that. It was just they didn't seem to have a real organized approach to it. And having read through a lot of this stuff, it's generally not great. These books were created for pretty young readers. They didn't have really strong stories. And a lot of times the art looks kind of phoned in, especially for the era where we were starting to get a lot of superstar artists really rising up. That said... We are going to talk about a couple of the really successful brands and how they leverage comics in different ways. Uh, I want to focus on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and G.I. Joe and the Transformers and then Ninja Turtles, finally. Because those are oh, those Turtles. are kind of like yeah. the really big cartoon brands anyway of that era. But we're going to go in kind of a chronological order. So He-Man, the toys launched in 1982 and he made his first comic book appearance right around the same time. Um, it was in DC Comics Presents, number 47, Superman and the Masters of the Universe. Please paint us a word picture of what is happening Ooh. on the screen. There's a lovely yellow sky, and it says, DC Comics Presents Superman and the Masters of the Universe. We're at 60 cents because we're at number 47 in July. So we have... <laughs> God, I love this already. So we are at Skeletor's chateau, shall we call it? 
Mm-hmm. And he is kind of perched above everyone. <laughs> he looks very menacing. He's got his kind of claw hands out. And then Superman's rolling up. And he is, I, I think, oh, you know what? I see what's happening. So Skeletor <laughs> has a sword and he is like, he's he's got like a, an electric sword. I You know, Skeletor is not one of my, not one of my dudes. So he is blasting Superman with his electric sword. I'm having such a hard time describing it because it's so strange. And then He-Man is like perched over there, like, like the muscly mass that he is Superman's thinking as long as Skeletor magically controls me, I must attack He-Man. And that means I could die. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I like how that's the takeaway buddy. Yeah. And it says from Eternia with death and He-Man's just that... poised and ready to like fight Superman here. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. this is a whole lot. <laughs> This is a whole it lot is of muscle. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's like not every really gay enough for the amount of this... muscle on display. Yeah. It's like I'm looking right now and there's like, first of all, I've always thought, I mean, He-Man's head is just so tiny for his body. Yeah. <laughs> just generally. I mean, look at that neck. It's the same size as his head, the head itself. Mm hmm. That's, Have you ever looked at the original He-Man action figures? I mean, it's been such a long time. I mean, that is a pretty fair description of how the action figures worked, too. <laughs> they are, uh... Yeah, they're they're a thing. So... I want to talk to anyway. the person that decided we needed to idolize this. <laughs> yeah. The He-Man action figures came out in 82. The comic presence came out in 82 as well the cartoons didn't start until 83 so comic books were already a much stronger part of the he-man brand than one might expect and then aside from his appearance in mainstream comics all of the action figures came with little mini comics included in their blister packs because what they would do is you would read these comics about the specific character that you had bought the figure of and they would explain a, the backstory of that character, but also help flesh out the world of Eternia at large. And it was really effective. It was a really solid marketing tool because I remember sitting there and swapping the comic books around with my friends when we were at school and, you know, when we couldn't play with them in class or whatever. But Mattel wound up coming across a, a really winning formula. And then what they did was they created a follow-up comic book miniseries from dc that i mentioned and then after that there were a couple of years in between and then they wound up doing a 13 issue comic miniseries from marvel under that star imprint that i mentioned and the series was pretty dope the final two issues show what i would argue is one of the best masters of the universe stories that we've ever seen prince adam actually loses the sort of power that he uses to transform into he-man through a time bomb it comic books are weird uh there, there's a time bomb it throws the sword through time adam winds up following it and he winds up in the future where he-man is dead and skeletor rules eternia and it's really dark and it's a two-part story and it's really fun and 
And then since then, things have been kind of bouncing around to different comic book companies. But He-Man, despite the fact that there was this really strong use of comic books, it didn't quite hit the level of mainstream success with comic book readers that the other brands we're going to talk about did. Marvel was actually a really major part of this. They wound up revolutionizing things through two major properties, which were G.I. Joe and Transformers. Basically, Marvel and Hasbro teamed up and they created this winning formula for an entire decade. And again, going chronologically, G.I. Joe was the first one that they worked on together. Hasbro had decided to revamp their G.I. Joe line. They were actually really struggling at this point. I think after the initial G.I. Joe toy, they had started to kind of fall off and, and go through that that tail end of, of success. And their biggest toy at the time was Mr. Potato Head, which was really, it was actually just parts for the potato or that you would plug into a potato. And with the loosening of the restrictions, they decided to, to really give things a run. And so they decided to revamp G.I. Joe, but they did it in a way that was much smaller and thus cheaper to produce. And they wound up working with Marvel on the story and everything else. In the early 80s, after toys and, and marketing and everything like that, the regulations had been loosened. There were still some regulations in place. Like you could only have seven seconds of animation or special effects in a commercial. The rest had to be actually showcasing the toys and their environments and all that. Although you could have sets and everything else, but there weren't any regulations on advertising books. So Hasbro actually told Marvel that they were going to advertise a comic book alongside the toy line. And that became their entire sales pitch. So when they did the pitch to the CEO of Hasbro, the guys that were making the pitch actually had a a theme song and they said, oh yeah, we're going to do a comic book as well. Marvel was pretty involved in all of the story and world building. They wound up pitching the idea of calling the entire unit G.I. Joe because before that it had been the specific action figure. And then they also pointed out that G.I. Joe didn't have an enemy to fight. And so they created the concept of Cobra. Ah, yeah. Yep. Marvel actually had a subsidiary animation studio that was called Marvel Productions, and they wound up creating these TV ads that were actually for the comic. And so we're going to watch that now. Oh, cool. And you can tell me what you think. All right. They get lasers. Yeah. This is catchy. Right? And I do appreciate the female presence in here. Yeah. Like, there's there's a token female. But, like, I can appreciate <laughs> that they didn't, like, you know, they didn't completely just, like, you know, sausage it up. <laughs> I mean, I get yeah, it. It's, like, it's the military. It but... <laughs> right. But the cool thing about this was that that commercial where it was entirely animation and good animation, by the way, was for a comic book. That's you know, they had never done anything like that before. These ads wound up proving so popular that Marvel Productions wound up getting a couple of animated miniseries greenlit, which then became two seasons of an animated series and then a movie, which wound up bombing at the box office. But that's beside the point, you know, and then 
Marvel kept the comic even after the series ended. Uh, Larry Hama is the guy who is synonymous with G.I. Joe. He actually wrote and illustrated the book for a very long time, and he wrote almost all 155 issues. I think there were only seven that he didn't write. And the comic is, to be perfectly honest, really excellent. Like, Hama's a really good writer, and he is considered to be one of the really celebrated writers of that generation. He was so good that Marvel actually notes that G.I. Joe, back in the 80s, was for a while its most subscribed to comic book. Because I don't think this is really a thing now, but what you could do back in the 80s and 90s was you could sit there and say, oh, I want to have these directly mailed to me. And Marvel would you know, say, well, we're going to give you a discount. You can basically pay for 10 issues and you'll get 12. It's, it, you know, it's the typical kind of like magazine subscription yeah. uh, option. But yeah, it turns out that for a while, G.I. Joe was the most popular of the Marvel comics. And then wow. additionally, G.I. Joe early on had what is considered one of the most game-changing issues in the history of comics. Hama decided to do an issue where there was no dialogue. It was just, it was a fully fleshed out story, but it's entirely silent. And it follows Snake Eyes, who is the mute G.I. Joe, and he goes on a rescue mission to a mountain fortress, and he rescues a fellow Joe from a group of ninjas. Snake Eyes, who is always in black, meets his nemesis Storm Shadow, who is all in white. And then they have a very quick sword duel. And at the very end, you see Snake Eyes is flying away on his little glider rocket thing. And he's got uh, a cut on his arm. And underneath the fabric of his arm, you can see this tattoo. And the ninja that he fought has the same tattoo in the same place of his arm. And it's the mark of the Arashikagi, which, spoiler alert, I have as a tattoo on my right arm. Because I'm a ho, giant ho, nerd. Ho. <laughs> nerd alert. Yeah, so this wound up being a huge deal, and as a result, uh, comic like comics throughout throughout the industry since then have aped that specific issue. And if you actually try to find the issue itself for sale, it is prohibitively expensive. I think it goes for in mint condition several hundred dollars at this point. Well, that's surprisingly uh, sensitive for that time period to focus on somebody with differing abilities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, <laughs> if you watch the Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, they talk about G.I. Joe. And Snake Eyes was actually a character that they created to save money. They just painted him all black. Oh, and wow. he wound up being the coolest character. And as a result, everybody you know, wanted that figure and it's, it's also worth heinous amounts of money, but <laughs> Hama. So the other thing about Hama is that aside from his comic storylines becoming considered Canon for the entire Joe universe, he also wrote most of the ID cards that were on the back of the action figures that flesh out the backstory and stuff like that. So there was this really unified narrative vision. Although one of my favorites is uh, <laughs> Stephen King, I believe wrote, the card for one of the cobra villains who was named crystal ball oh really yeah who i believe he's from bangor maine and he is the seventh son of the seventh son and has all sorts of vague supernatural powers and hypnotism and all that anyway <laughs> but yeah 
So the G.I. Joe comic wound up being more successful than the cartoon, and then it ended in the 90s uh, with issue 155. And we'll get into what's gone on with it since then later on. Next up, I want to talk about Transformers, which actually has a really similar story. So after the success of G.I. Joe, Hasbro decided to adapt the Japanese Diaclone toys for a Western audience. And they, again, were like, well, we can't, there's no story for us to really sell this with. And we need that, that narrative juice to really make kids excited about it. And so what they did was they went to Marvel and they said, here are toys. Here's the very basic premise of the Autobots and the Decepticons. Can you, can you come up with stuff? And so Jim Shooter, who was the editor in chief at the time has a story about how he, he went to one of his main editors and writers and asked him to come up with stuff. And the guy was like, no, I'm not bothering because it was it was a Friday night. And oh. He was like, they need them oh. by Monday. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, and finally, what he did was he got to this guy named Bob Budiansky. And Bob, I, I, I don't know how many editors or writers he went to, but but he was genuinely surprised when Budiansky said, yeah, all right, I'll take it on. And he wound up creating all of the initial lore for Transformers over the course of a weekend. And then wow. as a result, Hasbro really liked it. And they decided to greenlit or greenlight a four issue miniseries. And this was another comic that wound up outliving the cartoon. That four issue series actually ran for 80 issues. So if you look at the 80th issue of Transformers, it says number 80 in a four issue series on the top, which I really love. That's hysterical. Yeah. And this is one of those things where you have a comic adding to the canon storytelling in the established universe. I don't know if you've checked out Transformers lore. I mean, like, you know, obviously it wasn't marketed towards girls, so I'm assuming it was not as big a part of your childhood as it was to mine. I mean, it wasn't huge, but I, I definitely knew of it and I've seen, you know, the more recent stuff definitely, but my brother had it on for sure. So, you know, I, I yeah. got my fair share. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Transformers lore gets fucking dense over the years because there are all these different generations of the Transformers. And I mean, I tried to read through some of it while I was researching this and it just, my eyes crossed. It was, it was wild. A lot of this is tied to the fact that there have been so many different animated series and movies and toy lines and it, but it all, blends together in certain ways and in other ways it's considered separate and it's pretty wild but i want you to remember this name so there was a british writer named simon Furman who wound up working on transformers for several years i think he wrote something like 25 issues give or take of that original series and then simultaneously there was also a uk series of transformers that ran and this was a weekly series but it ran for i think almost 300 issues it was wildly popular and it was a mix of the stuff from this marvel series as well as totally original content and so we'll we'll get back to that in a little bit yeah but yeah so the final one the final big brand that i really wanted to talk about was the ninja turtles which was kind of the exception to this rule because instead of it being a comic book that was established to help grow brand awareness this massive brand wound up growing 
around a really obscure comic. Like, what what do you know about the Ninja Turtles? I should have led with that. I'm sorry. Oh, I love the Ninja Turtles. My brother and okay. I used to watch that. I like, I have the Teenage Heroes in a mm-hmm. Half Shell, Turtle Power. Yeah, no, we had, we had them on VHS and we even had the little like, you know, sometimes we would go to like stores would have the promo videos. And yeah. so we had a, a promo video from one of like a pizza place or something probably. So yeah, they, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. My bro, I mean, but merch galore, merch yeah. freaking galore. Yeah. And that was yeah. the big takeaway. My brother had Ninja Turtle, everything, you know, sheets, dishes. Like if you could put a Ninja Turtle mm-hmm. on it, there was a Ninja Turtle on it, you know, beach towels, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Did you, did you ever see the original like traveling music show that they did? I don't think so. <laughs> oh man, it was oh, it it was a thing. It was back in the early 90s if I remember right. So basically, this is this all came about because Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird wound up creating this weird obscure indie comic that wound up just becoming a hit. And this freelance licensing agent named Mark Friedman sought them out and he wound up pitching the brand to a bunch of different toy companies and eventually he got playmates to bite and it became this global phenomenon like it's one of those things where i remember just ninja turtles being everywhere and the the other thing is the toys were constantly pumping out new content and it was one of those brands where it really worked because they were like it's a weird science thing and we can do all this crazy stuff like there was there was a bat named wingnut there there was there was a guy who was i think like a mutated praying mantis i i do remember that too oh wow i remember usagi yojimbo at one point came into the, the toy series which i didn't even realize at the time that he was a totally different character that was not actually connected to the ninja turtles you know, he was created by an artist named Stan Sakai. And oh. yeah, like, but he, he wound up hanging out with the turtles for a little bit and it felt totally natural. Yeah. <laughs> that original comic was super not appropriate for kids. Like, oh. it was really dark. And also the art, you know, it was created by these two guys who were, you know, relatively young in their in their 20s and early 30s. And it was it was really it was black and white the art was a little bit amateurish in certain ways and at the same time it was profoundly violent so this was not a comic that they could really market towards kids to to help grow the brand or provide another avenue of of revenue generation so i'm going to send you an image from the first teenage mutant ninja turtles comic by eastman and laird and what's your take on this? D- describe what you're seeing. So, yeah, it's black and white. You know, it's it's got mm-hmm. gray, some gray in the background. But the picture itself is black and white. And it's very, because it's black and white, it looks very chaotic when you first look at it. But when mm-hmm. you look further into it, these turtles, which they do resemble the the ninja turtles that we know and love today you know or that we that kind of came about in the the comics in the 90s but they are just slashing guys and like yeah they just look it's just much more um 
oh yeah there's like blood spurting out of of people's like one guy's holding his eye and there's blood coming out and you know it's Mm -hmm. it's much more it's definitely much more graphic and they look much more malevolent than they they appear in the comics they're very happy-go-lucky like yeah dude in the comics and these are anything but cowabunga yeah the actual quote-unquote cowabunga element came from the cartoon that was the thing that it became a much more child-friendly ip and as a result they wound up partnering so mirage studios wound up partnering with archie comics of all places to create the (laughs) the teenage mutant ninja turtles adventures which was a comic that started out as a pretty straightforward adaptation of the animated series but it gradually we'll get into this in a sec but i'm going to send you i'm going to send you another screenshot from another early issue of tmnt adventures is wow. this more in keeping with what you remember from the turtles or or is the first it's definitely the latter yeah the second one here is yeah. more it's this one's definitely much more cartoony it's very colorful than yeah. of course the turtles bright green it's violent in a different way because it's not he's not in this frame itself or in this set of frames he's not attacking a person he's actually attacking what looks to be like an android or some other mm-hmm. kind of humanoid robot and chopping yeah. it like just straight down the middle i mean that in and of itself is pretty violent but it's a robot you yeah. know it's it's a little bit different and then the robot talks afterwards and so it's kind of funny you know oh just a little oil you know it's so it's yeah. much more playful than this one and even the villain down here he's also the all the villains at the bottom are very cartoonish very happy-go-lucky villains i have to say got a rhino down there yeah. i remember all these characters i just can't remember their names so like the rhino four. and warthog are Be- bebop and rocksteady i i can never remember which one is which <laughs> uh and then of course it there's shredder <laughs> yeah tmnt adventures was originally a pretty straightforward adaptation of the cartoon series, but Eastman and Laird are these two creators who weren't overly precious with with the Turtles. And they wound up handing control of the stories over to these two guys named Ryan Brown and Stephen Murphy, who they gained control of the series at issue five. So it was like real early on. And then they basically were sitting there saying, we're going to do whatever we want with this. And they wound up taking the series in a much more mature direction, but they still kept it kid-friendly. And they focused on themes like social justice, environmental activism, and animal rights. And they also introduced a number of concepts that have stuck around in the larger Ninja Turtles canon. So they gave April O'Neil more agency, and they had her start training with a katana. Shredder stopped being quite so mustache twirly, and they gave him kind of a... a deeper character who was much more honorable and that series ran for 72 issues and Archie actually created a number of spin-off comic series from this that also played into the larger canon so this was one of those cases where it could be argued that the comic that was originally adapt or put out to to kind of just create a standard adaptation and retell the same stuff shaped the overall brand and public awareness of the turtles more than the original comic 
and don't get me wrong the original comic is also its own thing that is very well known amongst core fans of the ninja turtles and all that but for those of us who grew up in the 80s one thing is much more identifiable with the brand that we know than the other okay exactly before we move on and talk about what happened after the 80s there's something that i think we should actually address which is that most of these comics were based on or tied to properties from this era that were oriented towards dudes yeah 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 that was gonna be my (laughs) yeah i mentioned that that rainbow bright had a comic based on her god-awful fucking movie which did you ever watch that I did. I, yeah, I think I've blocked most of it from my memory, but very colorful, lots of clouds. It, yeah. The only thing I really remember from it was there was a, there was a boy who also rode a flying horse, except it was a rocket horse. Cause you know, y- y- you can't make him too girly. Uh, it was not bed. good. So we had strawberry shortcake. She had a comic under the star line. Would you like to guess when the first my little pony comic hit the market in the u.s oh goodness i'm gonna say in the 90s because i remember my little pony am i wrong Mm, 2012 wait 2012 yeah no 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 wait there but i remember watching my little pony and stuff yeah no my little pony was an established brand and all that yeah they had they had the toys, they had a movie, they had books, they didn't have a comic book. I understand. Okay, wow, that's so interesting. See, and I would have read the heck out of that. That and Pound Puppies yeah. and I short Strawberry Shortcake. Yep. I would have been all over those mm-hmm. things. Uh, another question. When do you think She-Ra got her first comic in the U.S.? Oh, definitely not until later. Pull a rib out for that one. 2013. 2013 yeah that that was well and when i say her first comic i mean the first time that she actually appeared in a comic um how about gem of gem and the holograms oh see that one i i know wasn't even a comic because i really like them i thought for sure yeah yeah gem didn't uh officially get her first appearance until 2011 and it was in a one-off New York Comic Con exclusive that Hasbro was trying to launch their own unified Hasbro universe, and then nothing happened with it. And then we didn't get any more Gem comics until 2015, and it was great. It's written by Kelly Thompson. It it is one of my favorite things I've read in the last decade. It's fantastic, and and it's also nice. it's very queer. It's so good that way. Oh, but yeah, I'm all I. Over it. Yeah, I was talking about this with Sarah, and and she very pointedly said, yeah, boys got comics and girls got books. Because yeah. a lot of these properties all had books for girls to read. Yep, I agree. I agree. And that's probably why I thought, yeah. you know, maybe that I had read or seen. I probably read a My Little Pony book. I probably read, you know, I mean, I, I definitely remember reading those types of books, you know, definitely lots of pictures. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably along the same vein as, you know, the boys comics, but just not comics for sure. Not. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. By the time that the, the turtles were really popular and then their popularity was fading, that was kind of the end of the era for Saturday morning cartoons as we knew them. Like the eighties were this golden age of commercialism and all of that changed in the nineties and Saturday morning cartoons fell off for a number of reasons. Like there was first, there was the children's television act, which was this act of Congress that was passed in 1990. And it included a requirement for television stations to document their broadcasting of programs. They had to quote, further the positive development of children's 16 ages or 16 years of age and under in any respect, including the children's intellectual and cognitive or social and emotional needs. And a requirement for the FCC to use this as a factor in license renewals. So they suddenly made it a much bigger deal to make content that was not just aimed at selling shit to kids. And then on top of that, in 1997, even stricter regulations were implemented and it required all stations to broadcast at least three hours of programming per week that was designed to educate and inform viewers who were 16 or younger. And it introduced requirements for regarding like on-air identification of these programs. And it was really stringent about the reporting. Like you had to do this. And then again, on top of this, there was a 1996 FCC mandate now that we were in the Clinton era, you know, so deregulation was not as much of a thing anymore. And it required stations uh, to program a minimum of three hours of children's programming per week and it had to be educational and informative aka ei on top of all that there was also the rise of cable news stations or cable stations like disney and nickelodeon which aired animation all throughout the week it wasn't just limited to saturday mornings basically abc was the last of the big three channels to air non-developmentally friendly content to kids and that was so they did that in 2006 and then the CW was the final holdout of television channels airing Saturday morning cartoons, but they finally stopped that in 2014. And on top of all of this, like home video game consoles were becoming increasingly popular and commonplace in American households. Uh, you know, again, it was one of those situations where in the early 80s, you know, there was one kid who had a video game console and your group of friends and everybody always wanted to be over at their house. And by the 90s, everybody had a super Nintendo or a Genesis or a game boy or something. So as you know, kids were much more inclined to play that stuff. And one interesting thing that I came across was there was an argument that actually the increase of no fault divorces in the seventies and eighties played a role in the decline of Saturday morning cartoons because visitations and custody exchanges often happened on Saturday mornings or afternoons. Oh yeah. That makes sense. I thought that was actually really interesting. And I think I'm not sure how much water it holds, but it's certainly something that seems plausible. Yeah. All that said, the big properties of the eighties have become pop culture keystones in their own rights. And they keep on getting rebooted with varying levels of success. Let's be honest. I mean, these were all massive money makers, and now the generation with disposable income is willing to shell out some big bucks on stuff like sculptures and high-end toys. Like you and I are both part of that sideshow collectibles group on Facebook <laughs> and the <laughs> amount of money that we see on display in photos of collections is just staggering. Sometimes it's wild. If I had more money, more space, 
more <laughs> if I had more yeah. everything, I'd probably be down that rabbit hole myself because there's some cool shit out there. Yeah. But and then the other it's, thing it's is easy. That... It's easy to to get to go for that shiny thing. And I think that's really what's been marketed. You know, it's like, ooh, we've got this new shiny thing. Let's mm-hmm. go get it. Yeah. And then the other thing is that our generation now is trying to chase its childhood and recapture those things that make us feel like we did when we were kids. And so aside from these toys where you can either get the really high end collector's item, or you can track down the original item. A lot of those original licensed comic books now are really popular. So it depends on, it depends on the brand. Obviously, if you look up the original star comics for masters of the universe or Silverhawks or Thundercats. And again, it's obviously the brands that were really popular with the boys and lasted for a while. Those things go for major money. I I saw an auction for the He-Man series that was a nearly complete set and it wasn't even in that good condition, but it sold for almost 450 bucks the other day on eBay and wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I have children. <laughs> like Yeah, no. Have you met like Ugh. it's not yeah it's not money that i that i feel comfortable spending totally. but you know and the other thing is that a lot of aside from the people who are trying to recapture their childhood you also have collectors who are treating these as investments because you have everything being rebooted as major movies right now you know hasbro keeps on threatening us now with a unified cinematic universe based on a ton of these properties that they had from the 80s and that they've snapped up as they've acquired other things that is yet to manifest itself, but the thing is, is you look at some of these comics from Marvel, like the Micronauts, and people keep on snapping up those original issues because they think that that's going to pay off at some point and it's going to be a huge return on investment. At the same time, you know, the comics have kept coming because these are all licensed properties. They've just bounced around to different publishers with varying results. And that said, the last decade or so has had some really, really good comic reboots. Masters of the Universe is now currently with DC and it had a stellar storyline a few years ago that was both a reboot and it simultaneously established that He-Man has its own multiverse and so all of the stories that they've told over the years are canon and that was where She-Ra actually had her first appearance in the comics as well yeah and then remember Simon Furman he was the British writer for Transformers that I mentioned oh yeah 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 so IDW is currently doing all of the comics for Hasbro properties. And what they wound up doing was a few years ago, they brought Simon Furman back to continue his run of Transformers from where it left off in the 80s. So for Mm. 20 more issues, or 28 more issues, however many it was, 20 issues, I can do math. They, They had him just keep continuing his story, which I thought was really cool. Side note, remember how I mentioned the Transformers UK comic? Yeah. So Transformers UK introduced one of my favorite comic book characters into the Marvel Universe. His name is Deathset, and he's a time-traveling robot mercenary who originally started off in the Transformers Universe. He was hired to, to track down one of the major Decepticons, and then he has interacted with Doctor Who since then. And has and and then eventually crossed over to the mainstream Marvel universe. And Marvel liked him so much that before they actually included him in the Transformers UK comic that he first appeared in, they had a one-shot issue or one sh- one page 
little mini comic that they threw into a couple of other comics first. They were like, oh no, this is our character. We're just we're just loaning him into this comic for a few issues. And it's like the most petty bullshit, but I love it. Because otherwise, Hasbro would have owned the rights to to his character if he had first appeared in a Transformers comic. Right, right. So, um... The nice thing is that we're at that point now where these comic books are allowed to stand on their own. And actually, one of the best comics that I've read in the past year is the recent G.I. Joe series by Paul Aller. It's, it is one of the, arguably the best comic book that I've read in the last year. It is incredibly mature and thoughtful. It deals with things like mental health and PTSD. And also it introduces queer characters into the G.I. Joe universe for the first time. Mm. So like, if you get a chance, I highly recommend checking it out. And then on top yeah. of that, Ninja Turtles actually uh, has, you know, also be continued to like have widespread appeal to everybody and it's now owned by nickelodeon but they've had i think five or six different tv series and all that but currently eastman and laird are doing a story called the last ronin which is basically the last ninja turtle story where the idea is all of the ninja turtles have died except for one and he's carrying out his final revenge mission in this cyberpunk dystopia it's wild damn that's dark yeah. and like it, I like it. Yeah, and you kind of love it, right? Yeah. But yeah, so like even after all this time, it's really hard to deny that comic books were a serious marketing juggernaut for cartoons in the 80s. Like not only did they help reshape the media landscape, but they also played a serious role in defining pop culture for an entire decade's generation. Do you have any questions? How do you feel about all this? Now that I've so, I've provided this information dump for you. <laughs> I that was really thank you so much. That was super interesting. I mean, thank I you. I've always, you know, been really into watching cartoons and you know, I, I love G.I. Joe. I love all of the other stuff. I mean, I just didn't know most of that information. You just told me about where it came from. So thank you. That's fascinating. Especially the Ninja Turtles, the different facets of the Ninja Turtles. I'm I'm gonna look into that because that's really interesting to me. I want I want to go like Dark Turtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the that one story that I just mentioned, the first two issues are on Hoopla, which, mm. by the way, you know, to our to our dozens of listeners, maybe, oh. uh, I highly recommend Hoopla. It is really fascinating how just how effective it is for digital distribution of comic books and, and other things too, but it's all free. It works with your local library yeah. aside from supporting your local comic shop, please support Hoopla because it is a wonderful public service that you should take advantage of. Yeah. And support, support your local library. A lot of them have a uh, friends of the library. I know yep. my local chapter does or my local branch of the library does. So my guess would be they probably have a comic section of that as well. Um, I, I haven't personally gone and looked and, mm -hmm. and sought that out, but that would be my, my guess. And if not, you know, a, a suggestion, they, they absolutely would be um, amenable to suggestions. They're so sweet there. Yeah. I don't know what their graphic novel selection is like up in your neck of the woods. I do know that, your county library system offers video games for rent. Oh, but we live in a fairly bougie area of the San Francisco Bay Area. And as a result, it's true. Our county library systems are pretty well funded. And so my, I live in the Marin area and Marin's library 
has a lot of graphic novels available like that you can just check out that are physical graphic novels. That's how I spent a lot of time catching up on current DC comic storylines because they didn't have something like Marvel Unlimited that I could just subscribe to for a nominal fee and then go through all the back issues. Yeah. Um, we have now visited the 80s and come out on the other side of all those go-go Reaganomics. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's now time for Brain Wrinkles, which is that part of the episode where we discuss one thing, comics or comics adjacent, that we have not been able to stop thinking about lately. Jessica, let's uh, start with you. Oh, man. I've got droids on the mind, my dude. Okay. Particularly, we've been talking about Hasbro, so this uh, fits in quite nicely. And I don't mm -hmm. work for them or anything, I promise. <laughs> Nor do I advertise for them. But I have purchased these design droids, and I bought mm -hmm. it at Target. And they have a, a BB-8 model. Of course, this is referring to Star Wars. Um, a BB-8 model and an R2. And they're so fun. They come mostly blank. They have some silver on them, but they're mostly white. Right. And... They have some stickers, but I paint them and I use oil paint pens to paint mm -hmm. them. And I have been designing them because I'm such a nerd. I've been designing them to resemble Disney characters, classic Disney characters. And so I actually have some that I've worked on. This is Snow White. Oh, man. Sorry. She's showing me on video and it looks really dope. Do you do you post these on social media at all? I will. Absolutely. I'll post it. Yeah, on Instagram. you should throw them up on Twitter. Yeah. So basically, I stylized them to look like the color palette of the particular Disney character. And so I just showed him one that was a, a Snow White. But I've been working on a, a, a Sleeping Beauty series. And so I've been working on the three fairies, which is Flora, Fauna and Meriwether. And I'm mm -hmm. going to have them battling it out over one of the R2 units, which is going to be the sad dress of Aurora's that's going to have the <laughs> multiple splashy colors. Oh, um, so I have Meriwether right here. Or excuse me, this mm -hmm. is uh, Flora. And this is Meriwether. Right. Made sure she adds a little bit. And then I've, I'm working currently on Fauna here. Yeah, so th these are basically Disney-bound droids. They are Disney-bound droids. They sure are, yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah, that's been my fun. Um, I got a little obsessed, and I have, like, eight of them in total. <laughs> nice. So it's been a fun little project for me. Um, I have been doing some um, process videos. They're not turning out super well. Um, but once they get a little bit better, I'll post them. But I've been doing some, uh, some time-lapse videos of me painting. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. What about you? What's on the what's on the brain this week? Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh no, you have a you have a face and I think I know what that stink is. Man. Okay, so when we're recording this, we are we're a couple of weeks out from the Snyder cut of Justice League actually dropping oh. on HBO Max, which means I don't know about you but I'm getting inundated with ads and promos and stories all over social media. And I just, man, I don't care. I mean, it's apparently I'll the watch only thing it. happening. We're, we're going to watch it. We're going to watch it. So we, yeah. we can discuss it. You know, but we're going to watch really it for fan. you guys, the listeners, just yeah. so you know, we're doing yeah. this for you. This is our first yeah, episode. <laughs> I hope you stick around. <laughs> More to come. And 
don't take this like I hate DC Comics. I I own more DC Comics than I own any other any other publisher in my collection. I love DC Comics. Mm-hmm. but i i wasn't really a fan of man of steel i generally haven't enjoyed most of the dc eu and i'm not really enthused about going further down that grim dark path that Zack snyder really seems to love it just it doesn't yeah. sound that appealing but then on top of all that warner brothers accidentally leaked the movie on <laughs> hbo max yesterday and and I scoped out some of the footage that people were posting and they were recording it on their phones from their TVs. So it didn't look that great anyway. But everything that was getting posted just kind of looks like ass. I'm not a filmmaker, but it just blows my mind at how bad what little I saw looked and knowing that $70 million <laughs> was committed to this. There's a bit where it shows... I don't I don't even know the context, but like Batman is is all post-apocalyptic and shit and everyone's rocking all these weird outfits. And then randomly the Joker is there and it's it's Jared Leto as the Joker, but but not but he doesn't look like the Jared Leto from Suicide Squad. He just you you know, the you know that the uh, oh, uh, what is it? The Conjuring universe that has the nun. Yeah, 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 no. So the footage that I saw, the Joker looks like the nun on her day off. I just, I can't. And I'm going to try to go into this with an open mind. I may need to drink a little bit first, but because I mean, it's also four fucking hours long, but whatever. I will be getting very stoned prior to this. It's going to take a lot. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, that's what's been on my mind. Wow. All for you, listener. All for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for listening to our first episode of Tencent Takes. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson. It was written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. And our credits music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica, me... I'm at Jessica with a K, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.